Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. So now, we are in November 222, just five days away from a traumatic midterm election that might very well presage an end to democracy as we know it, to twist a cliché. Oregon is vote by mail, and surely nearly every Oregon voter has honored the franchise and stamped their ballots for the count November 8th, which is also my sister's birthday. But if any of you are like me, you generally wait until the last moment for everything, and sometimes simply neglect doing what you know you ought to do. So don't waste another minute. Vote. Mail your ballot. I start today's program with my own southpaw slant on the electoral stakes confronting our faltering democracy. First, a quote by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. A civil war is not a war, but a sickness. The enemy is within. One fights against one's self. The current political climate in the USA is one of incendiary reversion, which is reflected by a single political party's blatant attempt to manipulate the democratic process to ultimately destroy it. The Republican, or more aptly, the repellent or repulsive Republican Party's insidious reactionary agenda apes a despotic clarion call for religious absolutism, quote, which ensures that American politics will be an ugly, unredeemed business for decades to come, unquote, in the words of George Packer, who wrote The Fall of Conservatism more than a decade ago. My friend Max, a former labor union boss, says that the Republicans have spent the past half century destroying the average American's faith in democratic governance so that no one will look to government to bring the common citizenry out of peasantry. The venture to convince Americans that government is the enemy and that only the new aristocracy of corporatism fronted by Republicans can save the remnants of Yankee Doodle patriotism, a prospect unmentioned in the Constitution, but wholeheartedly advocated by so-called strict conservationists, and most likely aided and abetted by various right-wing militias that have taken root nearly everywhere in the USA. Max also says the Republicans have successfully promoted the desocialization of society, that, in essence, we are all alone trying to make the best we can instead of being a vital part of a cooperative and mutually interdependent society. The middle class nearly gone, fringe desperation succeeds unified political action necessary for ordinary people to deflect an oncoming flood of reactionary despotism. And, of course, those who create the whirlwind ignore the consequences of what they wrought, onerously 
criticizing their critics as traitors. They hoped to grasp all the power and wealth afforded their larcenous treachery and let the duped and disenfranchised majorities they had politically swindled reap the devaluation. Max says, we the people have come a long way from the man who said all we have to fear is fear itself. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was elected president of the USA 90 years ago in 1932. To those Machiavellian racketeer Republicans who say fear works for them. It might be useful to think of the grand old party as a criminal conspiracy to take over the federal government for their own conspirational purposes. As the famed legal crusader Clarence Darrow once said of railroad executives who illegally used federal troops to break railroad strikes by implanting toadies into the U.S. Attorney General's office. The presidentially dethroned Donald Trump and his ideologically avaricious cabal are committing a monumental tragedy on the American people. They are determinably and patently unconstitutionally conspiring to dissolve American democracy to conform to the dictates of capitalist theology, their true religion, which depends on throttling the Bill of Rights and civil liberties in the USA. Only a few legal restraints prevent the repellent party usurpers from excesses such as occurred in Germany in the 1930s. But existing restraints are being whittled down as preventives to tyranny have been nullified since before the Trumpian fiasco. The premise that a single political party is entitled to absolute power and able to shut out every other option in the belief that only one ideology is mandated by God and white men is the most egregiously dangerous aspect of current politics in the USA. Separation of church and state is not only consistently blurred, but actually annulled in the course of manipulating religiosity to serve the corrosive corruption of empirical state power. The reprehensible Republicans are recklessly destroying the government of the people, by the people, for the people, fabric of American democracy, while falsely pontificating its core values. They are stealing the USA from its people, subjecting them to contemptible and fraudulent governance that benefits an ideologically voracious cabal which would abolish civil and legal rights to a majority of Americans who are not white nor Republican. Jennifer Rubin, newspaper columnist extraordinaire, struck the nail on the Trump when she recently wrote that Republicans, quote, seem unbothered to be portrayed as bullies. They show no empathy for women. Indeed, Cruel and ignorant rhetoric seems to be the norm in GOP circles. Republicans are hardly the image of masculine leadership. In many cases, their Democratic opponents have aptly portrayed them 
as small, groveling men trying to stay in Trump's good graces. For that, they have no defense, unquote. And that was Jennifer Rubin. And Katrina Vanden Hoover, formerly editor of The Nation magazine, writes, a people battered by multiple crises, which she calls a time of polycrisis, are tender for those who would ignite racial fears and nativism. Fear and insecurity can easily displace the optimism that is the foundation of democracy. Our corrupted and gridlocked politics can make a strong leader and what has been called illiberal democracy seem attractive. These elections, despite the triviality of campaigns flooded with oceans of disinformation and dishonesty, are consequential. They will decide who will address the polycrisis and how. And that was Katrina Vanden Heuvel writing for the Washington Post. And now, the late Dr. Robert Brake, formerly of Ocean Park, Washington. We have no right to vote, which he wrote last year in September 2021. Many Americans regard voting as a duty, an obligation, or even a sacred right. Numerous highly regarded documents attest to its significance. See the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the Charter of the Organization of American States, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But not all is clearly defined or accepted by many Americans. Some even regard voting as an act of little consequence or significance. Trying not to parse or hair-split, I ask you to imagine what would happen if contemporary Americans were asked to vote on adoption of the U.S. Constitution as originally drafted, stripped of all changes over the last two centuries. Our nation of more than 330 million lives in a time and place where, as President George W. Bush pledged in his second inaugural address, it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world, quote, unquote. Imbued as we are with that spirit, if we were transported back to the winter of 1787-88 and asked to vote on the Constitution, we might recoil at some of its provisions. The original document establishing our government acknowledges and weaves slavery deeply into our society. Women cannot vote, and two of the three major federal offices, president and senator, are not voted on by the people. Further, the Founding Fathers made no explicit mention of the right to vote, and there was no right to vote in the Constitution until Amendments 12, 14, 15, 17, 19, 20, 25, and 28. The word vote appears in the Constitution only in relation to how representatives, senators, and presidential electors perform their duties. Representatives 
vote. In fact, while they are performing their duties in the House, they are immune from arrest for most crimes. But the people's vote is not mentioned. Consequently, an individual's vote is neither protected nor guaranteed. The phrase, right to vote, simply does not appear in the Constitution, nor does it appear in the Bill of Rights. The founders wrote a Constitution that gave Congress the right to pass copyright and bankruptcy laws, the right to borrow money, the right to establish post offices. Exactly how long is a mile? Congress is granted the power to say. In other words, to fix the standards of weights and measures. Unquote. Congress was required to keep a journal of its proceedings. Members of Congress were guaranteed a salary. Amid this wealth of detail, scarcely a word is spent on how the people are to vote or how their consent to be governed is to be assessed. Even in the wake of the Bill of Rights, which made a slew of individual rights explicit, the Constitution did not mention a right to vote. The right to assemble and petition government was established. The right to keep and bear arms, to a jury trial, to a speedy trial in criminal cases, to due process of law, to confront witnesses in criminal cases, yes. Voting rights, no. It is almost as if, in the course of constructing a house, the contractor ordered the refrigerator and stove, the windows and curtains, the roof shingles, bought all the interior paint, and built the swimming pool. But he completely forgot about the foundation. Of course, the founders were not so oblivious. And contrary to many common accounts, they were not stiff-necked anti-democratic elitists, hostile to the swarm of unwashed voters. But during the hot summer in Philadelphia in 1787, when they were writing the Constitution, the old adage that politics is the art of the possible held sway. The decision not to address voting rights in the Constitution was not an oversight. It was a pragmatic decision. It was not politically practicable to impose uniform suffrage, i.e. voting, laws across the original colonies. If the founders had tried to do so, they would have ignited a conflict among states, each of which had distinct traditions and approaches to voting. A uniform federal approach to voting would have overridden some states' traditions and inflamed a substantial number of the states needed for the document's ratification. Was the new, fragile federal government really going to tell South Carolina that free blacks could vote? Or was it going to have to do the opposite and tell Massachusetts, which did allow blacks to vote, that it would have to ban their voting? A uniform federal voting system was a bridge too far. It was easier to let state laws and provisions dealing with the vote stand. After all, almost all elections were local. Only one of the newly created federal offices was subject to direct popular vote. Neither senators nor the president were elected by the general population. Only members of the House of Representatives stood before the people before election. 
the Constitution, in effect, integrated whatever the states might say about the right to vote into the new federal system. Each state was required to have a Republican form of government, but no more than that. In the time that passed, once our founding document was adopted, nothing has been more sharply disputed than our voting rights, not taxation policy, not government regulation, not our safety net, Social Security, Medicare, welfare, not railroads, not the Internet, not freedom of speech, not health care. Nothing rivals the intensity of, the importance of, or the blood spilled over our nation's debate on the right to vote, a subject that was ambiguously and elliptically avoided in the Constitution. Today, in the wake of a civil war that left more than 600,000 dead, eight constitutional amendments, two monumental social protest movements, the youth quake of the 1960s, the transmortative lawmaking of Congress in 1965, and the convulsions of the 2000 presidential election, most Americans feel reasonably confident that they have something approaching a right to vote. Or maybe it's just a privilege. To a degree, the easiest way to think about our voting rights system is as a sedimentary rock formation, its layers laid down and intermingled over centuries with federal and state constitutional provisions, laws, and regulations evolving over the course of our history. But the fundamental layer, the right to vote, has never been laid. Sure, there is no overreaching federal right to vote in our Constitution. On a national level, the right to vote might best be understood in the negative. The United States has universal suffrage, almost. The vote cannot be denied to a citizen on the basis of race, gender, age, once the voter is age 18, our ability to read or to pay a poll tax. But some categories of people can still indisputably have the right to vote denied, felons or non-citizens, for example. An individual's vote cannot be diluted, made to count less than another person's. However, as simple as it might be to formulate the principle, one man, one vote, implementation is not nearly so straightforward. And the right to vote, to the extent there is one, must be equally protected. Though, like one man, one vote, implementing equal protection is not clear-cut. Beyond that, whether one has a right to vote is largely a matter of state law. The right to vote in the most practical sense, the way people cast their ballots and have them counted, can be restricted and made difficult in numerous ways. And whether efforts to restrict the ability to vote go too far is determined by a blend of state and federal law. The bottom line, voters in the United States simply have no constitutional right to vote for president. The fact that Americans can vote for the electors who then vote for the president is a generous gift given by state legislatures. They are free to take it back whenever they want. 
we have no right to vote by the late Dr. Robert Brake, formerly of Ocean Park, Washington. And now, a little political levity from an old friend and mentor, guru, Norman Solomon. The power of Babel. Sure, you'll need pollsters and fundraisers, ad writers and strategists, but if you want to win the next election, you've got to keep talking, and that's where the power of Babel comes in. Ambiguity that sounds forthright is a politician's best rhetorical friend. Strive to present your expedient choices as acts of courage. When you stoke the lowest common prejudices, do so with visionary hot air. Keep flattering voters. Don't let on that you are unlikely to lose an election by underestimating their discernment. Your ultimate weaponry comes down to words. Select only the loaded ones. Take aim with steady determination. Make every verbal bullet count. Learn to fire with a single fluid motion of your tongue, which should always be polished and well-oiled. The power of Babel will provide you with plenty of ammunition, from the tarmac to the podium. Remember that the best buzzwords commonly precede and preempt thought. Used correctly, they can guard against meaning, the most dangerous hazard of political language. Meaning causes big problems, and it's so unnecessary. Don't shy away from time-worn double-talk any more than you would avoid putting bullets in a gun because others just like them have been used before. It is true that the wrong cliché, ill-chosen, and poorly aimed can shoot you in the foot, but the right one will find its mark, the voter. Thousands of effective speeches and deft press releases can result from the proper use of the power of Babel. Here is an example of a competitive statement, chock full of potential sound bites. Quote, America bashing and anti-Western appeasement may appeal to atheists, but such backroom bankruptcy is barbaric bean counting inside the Beltway, where Big Brother is big government with a blank check. Boys on the bus don't seem to mind the breakdown of the family. With the brie and white wine set and their burdensome budgets, a bureaucracy of cheap shot class conflict is fueling costly cradle-to-grave criminality. The demagoguery is divisive. Doom and gloom feds promote a feeding frenzy, aided by flim-flammers, flip-flops, herd journalists, ideologues, and influential peddlers. Impotent insiders are in sync with instability, intolerance, irresponsible labor bosses, loopholes, and mudslinging. This great nation has grown over-dependent on PACs, partisanship, personal attacks, perversion, and pessimists. The people must not be polarized as political footballs for pork-barreling, power-hungry prolificates and their propaganda. What's more, we have no need for protectionist pundits, quotas with the reckless red tape 
of reverse discrimination and the rhetoric of self-appointed, self-styled 60s radicals bring sleepless nights, sloganeering, and smears. With smoke and mirrors and smoke-filled rooms, soak the rich spendthrifts are strident as they tax and spend. These threats are tragic, tyrannical, unethical, and even unpatriotic. The work of vested interests, the Vietnam syndrome, violence, waste, welfare, wheeler-dealers, and wrangling zealots, unquote. See, it's easy. Of course, you'll want to exude plenty of positive, reassuring messages, too. Here's a sample, alphabetized for easy reference. Quote, America is back and bipartisan, biting the bullet with competitiveness, diplomacy, efficiency, empowerment, in-games, and environmentalism, along with faith in the Founding Fathers, freedom's blessings, free markets, and free peoples, and most of all, God. Our great heritage has held the line for human rights, individual initiative, justice, kids, leadership, loyalty, mainstream values, the marketplace, measured responses, melting pots, the middle class, military reform, moderates, modernization, moral standards, national security, and old glory. Opportunity comes from optimism, patriotism, peace through strength, the people, pluralism, and points of light. Pragmatism and the power of prayer make for principle, while the private sector protects the public interest. Realism can mean recycling, self-discipline, and the spirit of 76, bringing stability and standing tall for strategic interests and streamlined taxation. Uncle Sam has been undaunted since Valley Forge, with values venerated by veterans, vigilance, vigor, vision, volunteerism, and Western values. Unquote. Nothing to it. May the power of Babel be with you. And that was The Power of Babel by Norman Solomon, who has been living in California and running for third-party politics for a very long time. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser-Schalk is this program's engineer. If, indeed, Oregon suddenly and irrationally becomes a Trump Republican-domineered state, then secession might be in order. Perhaps the old Pacific Coast notion of Ecotopia, California, Oregon, Washington, and also British Columbia, with apologies to Canada, as a separate nation. It has been 60 years since Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring in 1962. She also wrote The Sea Around Us many years earlier, as well as a couple of salty sequels, which are especially great reading for coastal folk who wish to be one with their environment. Remember, vote. <laughs>